0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the COHK Anthropology Podcast. Today, we are so happy uh, to have the opportunity to talk with uh, Associate Professor Teresa Kwan. Um, Teresa says that she became an anthropology major after taking one class. Um, This was at UC Berkeley. Um, Her her interests are broad, uh, but they coalesce around the theme of modernity and subjectivity. And she's especially interested in the contingencies of life and the experience of control in relation to large-scale social trends and historical shifts. She's explored this theme in her book, Love's Uncertainty, the writing of which has led her to take a strong interest in the issue of luck and the distribution of responsibility, specifically how and why responsibility is taken and under what circumstances. Currently, she's following the development of family therapy in mainland China. Welcome to the show, Teresa.
1: Thank you, it's nice to be here. I think this is my first podcast interview. So I'm both um, a little bit nervous, but also excited to be able to do this. So thank you so much for having me. I, I
0: guess I'll start with one question then, Teresa. Um you, you talked about having done one anthropology uh, class, um, and, 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 and that got you into choosing it as a major. Uh, p- perhaps that's where we can start, I mean, what, what did you find so compelling about the discipline of anthropology you know, that, that, that led to that decision?
1: Yeah, sure. Um so it was accidental. Um the way I happened upon anthropology at first. Um it was kind of an unhappy event. Unhappy from the perspective of an eighteen, nineteen year old. Um, you know, at at, at my university, uh unlike um, our university, you don't declare your major until your third year. And before that, you just kind of randomly take classes um, according to your interest to fulfill certain breadth requirements. And it could be like five choices to or seven choices to fulfill a requirement. And for I think it was a social science humanities requirement, I chose a history class. Because um, I, I looked, I, I looked like something I would want to do, um, and and then I was informed by the registrar that I it was already too late. By the time I tried to register, the class was totally full, and they had kicked me over to the introduction to anthropology class, um, and said that's the class that you're going to take to fulfill your requirement, and. I was a bit unhappy at the time because I I didn't know what anthropology was. I never heard of this subject before, and um, and and I went to the bookstore and I looked at the required books I would have to read for this class, and then I felt even more upset because none of these titles spoke to me. I you know I. I This part of the story is actually really embarrassing to tell because I I was a very immature um, teenager at the time. And I just didn't feel like, you know, like, why should I care about the lives of these people in some part of the world that I don't know anything about? Right. So. um, So that was that. Um, I ended up just taking the class. Um, I, I, I don't remember you know, it's kind of strange when I think back that that I wasn't really given a choice, but I took the class. The class was taught by um, a professor named Jack Potter. And, um, Jack Potter, he is, um, a, quite a well-known name in China anthropology, especially scholars from a certain generation, because he was one of the first, um, he was a part of the, of the generation that t- got to do field work, um, after the lifting of the Iron Curtain. And so he went and did his field work in a commune in Guangdong province. Jack Potter was a Marxist China anthropologist. And being a Marxist, he was very um, interested in what, you know, socialism and practice. So he went and this is the reason why he went and lived in this commune. It was not yet disbanded, even though uh, it, this was already the 1980s that is, he did his fieldwork. And anyway, um, it was an introduction to, to anthropology, but... His interests and his um, concerns very much shaped the class. So we read, um, you know, some ethnographies um, about uh, Maoist China. We read some some essays by uh, Green Party activists and politicians. This is a political party in the United States. And I learned for the first time um, what the you know what the communist revolution really was about or at least from the perspective of people who supported the the revolution um and and you know the the coming to power in 1949 of the ccp and to me this was a completely mind-blowing experience and it completely turned my world upside down in the kind of way that anthropology often does for students, students who are new to anthropology, but in my case, it was very specific, very specific to my family history. So I grew up in a KMT family um, that was still carrying um, war trauma from the 1940s, and so the view that I had of what party means, what you know, what what the revolution, what the PRC was all about was completely partial. You know, it's a story as told through, um, uh, it's actually, a, I, I come from a Kongjin family. So I had uh, the, uh, both my grandfather and, and an uncle who were in the Air Force. So they were directly involved in the war. Um, and and yeah, I mean, and, and you know, Jack Potter, it's not that he exactly, you know, now that I'm, I'm really familiar with the research, I think he's definitely um a, uh, uh like belongs to a corner of of china studies that had really romanticized the maoist period right and to to go from kmt family stories to this very sort of like pro prc marxist anthropologist it was really just a you know it turned my world upside down and after that class i declared anthropology as my major i thought wow this is really a subject that um can blow your mind um and get you thinking things that you never you you never could have imagined and this kind of a uh, like um uh It was like this with every class I took, regardless of, I mean, not every class, of course, there are some classes that that I have forgotten. But there are, you know, some other classes that I felt like just really um, transformed stuff, introduced me and exposed me to really interesting things and ideas. So does this class and your own family
0: background lead you to the um, research in China yourself?
1: Yeah, um, not directly, no. I mean, at that moment in time, I, I didn't even have this dream of being, a uh, you know, an academic to become a researcher, not by any means. Um, I actually wanted to be a filmmaker. That was sort of the dream that I had as a college student. And this was because of another class I took. I took a class. Um, it was a series. The first semester was on the history of ethnographic film. And then the second half, the, the second class in the series was uh, the production of ethnographic film. And um, I, along with my team members, we um, we produced, uh, directed and edited this film on sort of, we called it like modern nomads. We, we uh, there, There's some name, with, I, I don't even remember now at the moment, but some name that we use to refer to the sort of like a certain group of people that lived in San Francisco that really rejected modern life and you know they they really like were heavily tattooed um actually it, it's sort of like the body modification crowd um and they kind of, in San Francisco at this time, they all sort of knew each other. They had a particular lifestyle, and then they also, like, supported themselves by doing things like tattooing and, and piercing people and stuff like that, and anyway, I just found them really interesting. We made a film about them, and after that, I was like, I want to be a filmmaker! <laughs> um, that's what I wanted to do uh, at, at that time, and so that dream led me to USC University of Southern California because USC had um what was um was a a quite a well-known program for training both anthropological thinking and filmmaking well
0: well, Teresa I I I didn't know this history I didn't know this uh, your your own history in anthropology can I can I I suppose there was some time between your first anthropology course and and this filmmaking um, project that you went into um but but yes that first anthropology course must have must must have disturbed you to some degree given your your you know that your family was personally involved in the war um if if it's possible could you talk more about that
1: yeah i mean i i i i feel this might be um part of it might be reconstructive, and I, I don't think I remember the really fine details, but I think just, um, I think being exposed to critical social theory for the first time and learning for the first time what um, economic development and the, what the capitalist mode of production has done to the world, um, and its impact um, both on the environment and also on people, social relationships between people. Um, it was just, you know, I didn't learn any of this stuff, this kind of critical thinking. None of this is, is you know, was taught to me in all my years of school, schooling, you know, through high school and so on and so forth. Um, I went to a public high school. It was just kind of. Kind of mediocre, um, I remember we took a civics class. we had to take a civics class i don 't remember much from the history classes I had to take as a high schooler. I do remember in elementary school the history class would tell you these stories about how Columbus discovered america right this, basically just uh, it 's like putting this this very colonial myth of the founding and establishment of the United States um, into a textbook and then presenting it as a historical fact. Um, You know, this is a public school education. It doesn't really teach you critical thinking, um, at least not at the schools that I went to. So that class was my first time being exposed to critical social theory and and you know I, I I think it this indeed Professor Potter gave us uh his view of of Maoist Chinese history. It was mind blowing because um you know he really emphasized the the the, the communist communist revolution as a revolution that was that wanted to eradicate poverty right and to close um the huge gap uh, between different classes. Um, and to, you know, try to create this utopian society where everybody could reach their, every human being can reach their potential in the context of community. So... And, and you know, I mean, it sounds great, right? So that kind of like going from like exploding your mind and getting you to think critically about things that you've taken for granted. And then, um, you know, going from there to thinking about how a whole entire country and whole entire society experimented with creating, um, uh, experimented with implementing this utopian dream. Um, It was just a really interesting thing to think about. Um, And all of this happened in a single semester. Um, And this really contrasted the kinds of stories that I heard about the CCP from family. And um, you know, I never really heard these stories in great detail. It was more images that I had. Um, and, you know, um, I think the reason why my mother's side of the family had the experiences that, that they had is because, cause, uh, her father or her grandfather was a landowner. So, of course, he was a target of, uh, of political violence and, and as were many other members of the family. So, I grew up with stories filled with images of just uh, really quite brutal physical violence, like dogs that were poisoned. Um, uh, One that sounds so strange when I say it out loud, but this is how I remember the story, Um, you know, like somebody being murdered by having a log of a tree rolled over his body so that all of the internal organs came out of the anus um that was another story i w- i was told um uh yeah and i'm trying to think of some other ones but i think these are the ones that i m- remember most clearly um yeah so so i you know these were the images i carried in my head and it, these were the images that i associated with um ccp
0: um Perhaps you can tell us then how how you subsequently developed this uh, film interest and how did it go from there?
1: Yeah, so with the filmmaking, let's see. um, I ended up, I I really enjoyed it. I really, you know, it was just, you know, working with film, um, actual film and physically splicing things together. Yeah, you know, so I, I, I ended up not... Wanting to be any kind of filmmaker, uh, filmmaking director or producer, I think mostly because it's just so tiring. It's so intense. I think I handle stress pretty well, but not as well as some other people. Anyway, I, I, I think that this experience did um, sort of teach me a lot about doing fieldwork as an anthropologist. Yeah, you have to be really proactive in doing field work, especially the kind of field work that many of us are doing now. Like, uh, I don't know, like on contemporary topics in urban societies, you have to be very entrepreneurial. Um, you have to reach out to strangers, to institutions and organizations, and hope that they will open their doors and let you in. As an insider from day one, you know, this is not an easy thing to do. Um So, you really have to have thick skin, right? And you have to be okay with rejection. And you have to be okay with failure, um, not getting what you want and not getting people to say yes. And this thick skin and the sort of like courage it takes to do what might seem like the impossible before the project starts, it just takes a lot of work. It takes so many small, tiny, 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 tiny steps um, in order to finally arrive at the goal that you have in mind. Um, And it's like that with fieldwork, especially if you, um, like me, um, and some of my students, you know, um, we're interested in experts and institutions where people are doing, you know, like they're just really like going about their business. I have a student working who was working on a, um, a research laboratory developing highly experimental cancer therapies. And then I have another student who uh, um, she she did her field work in a um, organization providing rehabilitation for aut- uh, kids with autism. Um, and then for me, my last project, my most recent project was in this um, Research Institute for Family Therapy. Um, the number of steps it takes. And all the failures that you will bump into before you finally find a place that says yes to you and opens their doors, it's a really long journey. And you have to, you really just have to like um, persevere and, and stick with it. Um, right. Um, but I'm also very curious um, about your research
0: topics You were mentioning um, your recent project is on family therapy. So can you tell us more what is the research about?
1: Yeah, so um, the research is um, the motive behind doing a research project in family therapy is because I've always been interested in mental health. Um And why is it, you know, and under what kinds of environments do certain uh, mental health issues emerge? And why does something get called a mental health issue rather than, you know, like, rather than being thought about as just kind of a general theme in human existence or just a sort of inevitable part of human suffering like when does that happen when does some form of suffering become a mental health issue i've always been interested in that um and i got really interested in family therapy because we actually there's actually a professor on our campus who is a practitioner and my interest started with reading um, an interview with her in the Chinese U campus newspaper. Um, and... I'm now forgetting what exactly was in in the interview that got me so interested. Um I remember she mentioned something about uh really liking movies because movies helped her to think about, you know, problems in the human condition or something. It was so philosophical what she said about mental health issues and then also the way she described family therapy was just such a so surprising because Um, You know, uh, the way family therapists think and the theoretical ideas behind this practice um, are quite anti-psychiatry. And yet this is a practice that is often um, uh, uh, situated in hospitals as an alternative to psychiatric treatment. Um, So just to make the long story short, family therapy is super interesting because it Reinterprets psychiatric symptoms as, um, a symptom of family conflicts. So the problem isn't inside somebody's brain, but instead in their, uh, in, in the natural ecology of the family, um, in their living environment. And so I, I just think it's really interesting how, um, um a human problem could be constructed in such a unique way so so what does it mean to think about you know um like what are the implications of thinking about uh you know uh, uh mental suffering in this way and what kind of solutions do they propose in in, in, in in responding to relational problems, to problems of suffering, I, I'm just just super super fascinated by the by that field. Uh, so so china is undergoing this thing the cycle boom right this li uh, re, this sort of uh uh fever for all things psychological um psychological knowledge psychological training psychological wechat accounts and so on and so forth um and there's all sorts of different uh Sort of treatment modalities, I guess you could call it, that are popular or ways of thinking that are popular. Uh, psychoanalysis is popular. Uh, I think Professor Huang, um, you know, really knows a lot about this aspect of, of the kind of flourishing of psychoanalysis in the Chinese context. Uh, Virginia Satir um, has also been a popular figure um, in the Chinese context. Um, uh hellinger's family constellation therapy is another popular modality um anyway there's just it's just sort of like flourishing in all these different directions and i've chosen to just focus on family therapy um for the reasons that i just said and in the in, in in doing the research um both in terms of what I was reading and coming across, and what people would say to me, it really, like, does echo your observation too. Like, it's something you know, family and family issues is something that many people are thinking about, and there's an it's been problematized in that Foucauldian sense, right? It's it's, um, it's it's not like fa- family or family problems is this thing that is like pre existed the discourse that brought the conversation into existence or sort of like solidified um, family as an object of reflection. Um, so so uh, kind of lost my train of thought. Um, yeah. So, so, so yeah, so there's a problem. There has been a problematization in the Foucaultian sense. Right. And, um, and I think this is just one of many answers for why um, the therapists who are training in different modalities are so interested in family therapy. It's on people's minds. It's on people's lips. I think what I find both interesting and, um problematic is the way that so many people talk about family and family problems in very culturalist terms right like oh it's so chinese to care a lot about the family we are a culture that has always emphasized filial piety and so on and so forth right um Um, uh, you know, or like, I think one explanation I have heard before about why family therapy makes a lot of sense in the Chinese context is that, you know, Chinese people will bring the whole entire family to a psychiatric consultation. So you might as well just consult the whole family rather than focus on the single individual because, you know, Chinese people always come with their whole families and, and, you know, and, and it's so Chinese. And yeah, so this is really problematic for reasons that are obvious to anyone who has studied anthropology, right? Um, I'm much more sociological in the way I think about these types of things. We we're really talking about social organization. You know, you could even say this goes all the way back to Durkheim. Um, what, what does, you know, like, or societies that are organized like this way will have certain effects on the relationship between individual versus society. And then, you know, same with societies organized in this other way. Um, so yeah, I guess that's, I think I could keep going, but I should probably just stop here. Um, yeah, it's family in China, family problems. Um, it's been, you know, it's an object of discourse um, in that Foucaultian sense. And I find the culturalist ways of talking about it quite problematic. Uh,
0: what, what I found fascinating with, with your research, well, I have two interrelated questions, but I'll start with the first. I mean, mental illness uh, wasn't you know was was uh, there was a lot of stigma attached around mental illness not not so long ago i mean i maybe e- even 10 15 years ago uh, even in the west but what accounts for the fact that it's widely accepted uh you know a, a widely accepted uh, phenomenon yeah. now that that there's this there's no longer this stigma attached to mental illness almost everyone is mentally ill i mean it <laughs> seems you know um so, so maybe, maybe that question first, and then I'll I'll follow up with the yeah, yeah, yeah with with another after you've answered this. So
1: yeah, good, it's sort of like um, if you're not if you're not um, feeling distressed, then there's something wrong with you, right? <laughs> if You're actually a healthy, like genuine human. If you're uh, distressed by uh, you know all the problems of society and everyday life, indeed. Indeed, yeah. So this is—it's a good question, and it's a question I—I've I, gotten before. It's interesting to think about. So, um, mental illness, uh, uh, has—you know—it's—it's it's a source of stigma, and to, you know, supposedly uh, Chinese. Um, will will talk to their friends and talk to their families before they seek out a stranger to sort out their problems, um, precisely because of the stigma attached to mental illness and also to help seeking. Right. So my answer to this question, it really has to do with the um, particularities of the way in which the cycle boom in China is unfolding these days. Um, and since actually you know, the, the turn of the 21st century when it started to kind of, uh, uh, the, when, when the popularity started to gain momentum, the cycle boom is much more of like a popular movement and kind of like a lifestyle choice. Yeah, so it's it, you know going to do a, a workshop, like a multi-day workshop. Um, a colleague of mine, she has been writing about psycho boom based on her fieldwork in the um, in this new age salon where they do these workshops for bringing out your inner child which supposedly will help you repair your relationships with your family and help you become a better and happier worker at your work. You know, they do these multi-day workshops where they really explore their childhood traumas and things like that. So so I, I think what's important about this example is that it's not like um It's not our image of a patient walking into an office to talk to a psychiatrist or a psychoanalyst and then having that one on one treatment. In the Chinese context, the group or sort of like group therapy is one of the major characteristics of the psycho boom. So you go and you try to heal yourself in the context of these group activities where people do things like act out their emotions Um, and you're doing it together with other people and there's very much a way in which, you know, the good feeling that you have during and maybe immediately afterward just has to do with like bonding with these strangers that you didn't know at the beginning of the workshop and then by the end of the workshop you become friends, right? And and then you're like, oh, there are people in the city, this huge big city that think like me and have problems that are similar to my problems. So, so, yeah, it's almost like, you know, like a friend of mine here in Hong Kong is doing a yoga teacher training at, at the time to sort of uh, do some personal work. And she she doesn't have the intention to become a yoga teacher, but she's doing this multi-day training um, to to do this personal work. And and she's getting a lot out of it. And I think these workshops and sort of psychological uh, courses and um and things like that um, function in a very similar way. Um, and for this reason, the kind of stigma that would normally attach to going to the hospital to see a psychiatrist—it's—it's um, it's not really—it's re- not relevant in this context, and not in the context of a psychoboom. boom. So it's interesting, right? So psychology is not just like somebody laying on a couch, but there are a lot of different ways in which um, psychological knowledge gets uh, disseminated and practiced.
0: Yes, different, different modalities of, of treatment.
1: Um... Yeah, different methods for bringing attention to yourself um, and for reflecting on your own emotions and how you might be able to modulate your emotions in a different way. So in family therapy and in a family therapy session, there's certain things that they are trying to work on. It's almost, they're almost surgical in their precision. You know, they, 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 they're working on these sort of like relational knots that have become really um, sedimented in a family Um, They kind of try to create these moments where those knots are reenacted in the context of a therapy session, and then they work on those knots. But me being an anthropologist in the early months of fieldwork, I would ask these questions like, well, maybe this teenager's problems with school doesn't have to do with the mom and the dad and the relationship between the three of them, but there's just so much pressure on school children these days, and this is all connected to larger societal problems, you know, and I'm like raising my hand and asking these questions that from their perspective are so irrelevant and in fact um, a little bit paralyzing as far as they're concerned, Um, And I think, you know, the response of one of the trainers was like, we are, we cannot fix that in a therapy session. And so, you know, like, anyway, I I, I guess the point I want to make is that um, family therapy taught me a lot about problem solving and how when you solve problems, you really have to demarcate a space of action in which effect, uh, like uh, the generation of um, desirable effects and outcomes is is really possible. So family therapy itself, the whole entire system, whether we're talking about the theory or the practice, I think it's a practice of, of delimiting a space of action in which to work on a problem. And delimiting that space of action does not mean that the human beings doing this practice are unaware that problems have multiple causes. They're totally aware, just as any thinking person is aware that any problem has multiple causes, right? But as a family therapist, they simply have chosen their profession um, uh, because they're interested in this one particular cause. Family therapy, it's something that evolved over time and it was um, um, it emerged out of psychiatry. The inventors had a background in psychiatry and psychoanalysis. And then they sort of like uh, over the course of time developed something. it's really neat to watch people go through that, like, how do people figure things out as they go? Um, and then, of course, personally, you, you get a lot out of it, too. Like, You learn a lot from uh, we call it practical wisdom in the anthropology of ethics. Like this is something that you learn a lot about when you do fieldwork, having um, certain themes in mind so practical wisdom is something that um that that you'll find in so many different places if if that's what you're looking for because it's just inevitable that human beings figure things out somehow according to the um particularities of their circumstances and situations
0: but i wanted to (laughs) I i wanted to take that point a little further um this, but what you said was very interesting about uh, about. Obviously, you approach family therapy as a as an anthropologist, and and I suppose you are quite critical of it. Um, based on what you said, you know, to, to what extent are they then imposing, you know, because they have a certain framework, right? A, a certain uh, a certain feel in which they've chosen to operate what dangers of, of them then imposing a certain interpretation on the situation when it isn't there, you know, like, like you rightly say, maybe the child's problems are caused by, um, all these societal pressures on school children. Right. So, so what what danger of that?
1: Yeah. What are the dangers, right? Family therapy after all is a system of knowledge and, um, you know, uh, Uh, anthropology students these days and scholars of a particular generation we you know once we start talking about systems of knowledge we then have to talk about power relations and you know uh Foucault and that kind of thing yeah so um Tony's question about um whether or not something is being imposed right um This is a tough question to answer um, because I I think it really gets at the heart of some of the issues that we um, talk about in in theoretical discussions and debates. Um, And so I guess just to give a quick glimpse of um, the terms of the debate at the current moment, I'll quote something that Bruno Latour says, in his book, Reassembling the Social. Um, um, He says something to the effect of... So basically, he proposes... To do sociology in that book, he, he argues that the sociology that he proposes to do in reassembling the social is different from the kind of uh, mainstream conventional sociology that is very established and, you know, everybody sort of just takes for granted as the way to do things. And there's a line, um, I'm not sure I completely agree with what he says, but he, he's such an interesting and good, vivid writer. I, uh, the quote is memorable. He says, the problem with the sociology of the social, which is the kind of sociology that he critiques, is that it doesn't begin until suspicion is introduced, that there's something something to be suspected right um, so he he problematizes how how important suspicion has been for sociology and then you know the, the whole book is really an argument for how the kind of sociology he wants to do or has been doing the sociology of associations would look at how things come together and enter into a relationship with one another um, and sort of uh, um, you know dynam- dynamically um, shape um, uh, uh, each other um, and then create this kind of larger whole. Um, which we we use the term assemblage or he uses the term assemblage to refer to this larger whole. There's this larger whole that is created from all these little different tiny things that then come together that is um, more than the sum of its parts, right? It, it then has this um, agency that is unique to the whole itself. So anyway, my point is just that, um, yeah, okay. I, I don't have a point yet. <laughs> That's Latour. So there is some way in which this idea and the approach has influenced um, my understanding of family therapy, um, and you know, it's like kind of it relates. It actually, your question relates to the story I just told about how, in my field site, I was asking these really inappropriate questions, right? And in fact, it was so offensive and so problematic for the main trainer that. I um kind of wasn't allowed to speak for a number of weeks after that, because I was messing with the dynamics of the group and what they really needed to get done. Like, you know, you're just creating problems that don't need to, to need to be created. Um So I think part of that experience kind of uh, it it said me it said something to me and it led me to this other theoretical uh, argument or perspective that I ended up developing. But um, I do think that when it comes to or for me, when it came to studying family therapy, um, what eventually became more interesting was how they put things together and what are the different things that enter into a relationship with each other, and what is the larger assemblage that gets put together, that that is created by this coming together of lots of different things? Um, I know I'm not making sense probably because this sounds so abstract. Um,
0: that that's very clear T- Teresa I I think okay, you Yeah please, please
1: push me to cuz I, I I could try to clarify if I, I if I suddenly got But, to, but I I um,
0: would I would say then that there is a logic in any kind of social practice there's a if if assemblage is saying how things come together then we we could argue that things always come together in any kind of social practice there's an inherent logic to every kind of social practice right uh so, so, what your, your your response is very interesting.
1: Yeah, sorry, oh. I, I, oh, I'm so sorry to cut you off, but I just wanna, Please. I just wanna echo that it's it's very interesting to um, think about logic, about practices having a logic, because that's what it allows it to endure, right? To sustain itself over time, there has to be some kind of logic that holds the pieces together, right? Um, In the case of family therapy as a system, there's so many pieces that are being held together. There is, there are the ideas that inform the kind of work that they do. There are the actual human beings, right? The the professional that provides a service and then the families that come with their problems. And then there's the material apparatus. Family therapy is really unique because there's so much technology involved Um, yeah they use um they use one-way mirrors. Family like a the an ideal family therapy room is actually two rooms. Um and it almost looks like a police interrogation setup because there's the main room where everybody is talking to each other. And then there's another room on the other side, which is the observation room behind uh, a one way mirror. Um, in the case of family therapy, it's all the trainees and maybe some consulting therapists and psychiatrists who are watching the family from behind the one way mirror. Um, to uh, for whatever reasons. Right. So so there's also the material infrastructure and there's a paper I, I, I wrote um, where I say that even the tissue box is one of the pieces that enters into this assemblage that makes this practice possible. Um, like, so there's so many things that like create this reality. So for me, it was just much more interesting and in identifying what are the different parts, and how exactly do they come together. So one thing is to identify the logic, what is the logic that sustains the relationship between all of these different things. But there's also a history to it. Right? So history and logic are two very different things. Logic is kind of ahistorical, but history is we're talking about a process that unfolds over time, and what happened here is going to be different from what happened there. And you know, when, when I think about family therapy in China, I have to think about where are these ideas coming from? What what was the original context? Who you know, brought, quote unquote, brought it over into China at what point in time, you know, and, uh, it, you know, family therapy actually entered into the PRC in the late 1980s. And it was really confined to a hospital context. And um the way in which I observed it being practiced was not in a hospital context. So already within just a few decades, there's this kind of evolution in the environment. Myanmar- in the environment in which it's being practiced. Um, so so yeah, I guess my short answer to try to summarize um, this answer into something really short, I think for me, it's just so much more interesting to ask all of these other questions rather than wonder what needs to be suspected. Yeah, what's wrong with this picture? I'm not in a position to say what's wrong with this picture until I figure out what is going on and do so in a way that really kind of just pays attention without any agenda. Yeah.
0: Is it possible that you could suspect and at the same time try to figure, want to try to figure out what's going on? So those may not be mutually exclusive. Uh, you reminded me of an uh, ethnomethodologist uh there's a tradition in sociology oh, yeah. that is v- very concerned and I believe Latour belongs in that tradition
1: right yeah yeah I, I know exactly and, what you're talking about yeah right. I, I i don't go as far as ethnomethodology so I, I'm so glad you asked this question because um i think for me um ethnomethodology is a little it is for for me personally i, I mean it's Great and fine for the researchers who do that kind of work because they're able to um, their observations are extremely detailed and extremely precise, almost surgical, just like the family therapist. Um, but for me, it it doesn't suit my sensibility and my taste because indeed there are things to be problematized. Absolutely. Um, for me, the, the things I like to think about, um, and I'll try to connect this to what, you know, to family therapy itself, but I, I think for me, um, it's, I like to think, I, I think about human well-being and suffering a lot. Um, and I think that anthropology and sociology has provided a number of really helpful um, explanations for understanding where suffering comes from, right? So, an obvious one is the capitalist mode of production, which alienates people from each other, and e- even alien- alienates workers from themselves. Or, you know, Max Weber's famous theory is that. Uh, um, uh, Modern society has become so bureaucratized and so rationalized that uh, becoming a proper subject of modern society means locking yourself up in this iron cage, right? Um, Yeah, so let me think. How does that connect to family therapy? So this is kind of a quirky answer. (laughs) It's not a typical anthropology answer. I weirdly, oddly enough, thought that family therapy, I've come to think that family therapy has a lot in common with social theory, Mm -hmm. which is a crazy thing to say, because I think the expectation is that I problematize family therapy itself, right? Rather than use it as a tool to problematize society. Anyway, I, I'll try to make the. this is, again, very theoretical. So let me try to just make this short and as simple as I possibly can. Um, an idea and a and a key word I heard a lot in my field site was stuckness. Yeah, so they understand many of the psychiatric cases that they they worked with, uh, that they saw, Um uh, they they understood in terms of um, what they call the identified patient. Um, so the, the identified patient is usually the teenager who has these symptoms, right? Maybe it's OCD, maybe it's bipolar disorder, maybe it's depression, so on and so forth. But in family therapy, they don't think of that patient as really being a patient, not patient in the medical sense, but rather the identified patient. Sort of like the scapegoat, not exactly scapegoat, but this is the closest word I I think, uh, I, a word that I think might be helpful for some people. Anyway, the identified patient is not really the patient, but it's just the patient that happens to be the person in the family that expressing, that is expressing the conflict on behalf of the whole entire system. Right. And that person, the quote unquote IP is stuck. In that position. And that person is stuck in that position because the family dynamics are stuck in a certain pattern. And nobody knows how to change that pattern precisely because they're so stuck in it. Because over the course of everyday life, this is what they, this was a pattern that they developed for interacting with each other, right? So I think thinking in terms of stuckness is very helpful for thinking about larger societal problems. Alienation is a problem of stuckness at this high, 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 you know, macro level, right? Expl- uh, relations, exploitative relations is, uh, you know, you you're a boss and you don't want to exploit your worker, but this is just how the wages that that person gets paid. So that you know, like you're a domestic helper so exploitative, right? It's so unfair that some people get, you know, practically I don't everything done for them, right? And and then the person who's doing all of the work gets paid like a mere 5,000 Hong Kong dollars uh a month to do that work. Like it's just, there's just something deeply unfair that we have this kind of uh, relationship between uh human beings. Um, so this is a, a, a stuck relationship too. We don't know how to fix it. We don't know how to fix it because we've we've had this pattern for so long. We don't know how to break out of these um types of uh, uh labor relations and uh you know, whatever other kind of relations that we have in modern society that really um um are not very nice. <laughs> And compromise happiness and well-being and keep us from really, you know, reaching our fullest potential um, as human beings. Um, I'm not a Marxist, but I really love a point Marx has made before about how human well-being and flourishing is only possible in community. Because it's only in the context of community where you can... um, You know, uh, where you can do lots of different things and not just be stuck doing one thing um, because, you know, you can put down your computer and pick up the broom instead because somebody else is doing the exact reverse. Right. And it's nice to be able to do that. But we just don't um, have things arranged in that way. So I'm stuck doing work that constantly has me at my computer. I don't have time for tiny pleasures like sweeping my own floor. I I think there's something deeply wrong with that, but I don't know how to fix it.
0: I'm afraid Teresa, we kept talking would would go on for hours because maybe forgive me, I I know time is uh, almost up, but on that note, what you said about family therapy is very interesting. You 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 actually talked about a scapegoat, meaning that scapegoat is actually representative of the family's problems. Yeah.
1: Um
0: this is really quite novel. I, I mean I'm hearing this for the first time. Um it's it's almost as if uh there's a recognition that these psychological problems are not the individuals. Is is that correct? Yeah.
1: They they deindividualize psychiatric problems, um, and that's what I find so fascinating about them is that they're anti-individualist logic. They're they're against the very logic on which so much of modern society is built. Um, now, so,
0: is that why this this practice has really taken on in China? You think um, be, be, be because of you know the importance of family? Fact- me to begin with in 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 the chinese cultural context
1: yeah.
0: do, do you i think? Can't
1: really say that the therapy itself has taken on i mean psychology generally speaking has flourished and become popular but there's so many different modalities right and and family therapy is just one of them um, in terms of like at my field site the families that were coming for therapy were really at the end of their rope. So I don't think they're representative of Chinese families in general. These are families that have really tried everything Mm -hmm. and they're ready for a new perspective. Um, and I guess that's maybe maybe the reason why I I got so obsessed with family therapy, because they're really kind of like a minority group, right? And this is what we do in anthropology. We find these stories that are buried in these hidden corners, and then we bring it to light and say, hey, isn't this interesting? And, you know, look at this. There are things that are happening in this tiny world that you you would never normally pay attention to that um that has something really interesting to say to you um so that's yeah I think I I, I can't say that it's it, like that the therapy and the practice itself is like flourishing in the way that some of the other modalities are flourishing like you know Virginia satire um you know there's, there's there's a lot of activities based on her ideas that are just for personal growth that are that that are much more popular you've actually um developed a few courses like explicitly on morality and ethics right in the past few years and taught them at both the undergraduate and master levels yeah. Right, so so how was the reaction from those young young students who haven't encountered so many troubles in life and and with all this deep philosophical moral <laughs> questions? Like what was the experience like with these classes? Yeah. Oh gosh, um I, I love this question because I there I just suddenly so many people pop up in my head, like stories and certain students and things they said to me. Yeah, um, so this is an m a student, and it was toward the end of the semester we started talking about ordinary ethics and this argument that Vina Vena das has that, um, you know, to think about you know, like really macro level scale political violence, we um, should also think about the capacity that human beings have to hurt and injure each other in the context of everyday life in ways that may not even be um, noticeable, observable, right? So this is one of the main ideas in this concept of ordinary ethics and we had spent a whole semester talking about morality and ethics in ways that were much more direct and straightforward. Like what are the moral problems of, selling your kidney so that you can buy a television, you know, like these really, really extreme cases that help us think about moral questions. But by the end of the semester, we started talking about things like, you know, how does a mother-in-law talk to her daughter-in-law and why is it violent? You know, like what, what does it mean to talk about the violence of communication or the violence of neglect, right? And I just really, I don't know, this isn't the best story, but I just really, really remember the reaction. Of one of the MA students, and she said, It it was really, I literally saw the light bulb go on over her head. She said to her classmate, She turned to her classmate after a lecture, she said, I just realized ethics and morality is not just some like big thing, but it's something that it's a part of our everyday life. And I mean, that's something I know, right? Because I read this research and I read this literature, but for her, she was like, oh, ethics isn't just something that philosophers talk about. And it isn't just, you know, about should I sell a kidney or not? Like, this is about how I treat you right now in this moment. And I just, I was so pleased by that. Um, I, I, I feel very pleased and glad to see a student or students in the plural develop um, a way of thinking that is very subtle, um, to be able to you know uh, notice things, small things, and to be able to observe how nuanced things can be. Um, you really kind of have to like slow down and look very carefully, and look, look and listen very carefully to um, think and observe in subtle ways. Yeah. And ultimately, I think this is kind of, I don't know, subtlety is is what drew me to the anthropology of ethics. I think it's a place where there's a lot of work, really great work that um, kind of works at all these different levels from the everyday all the way up to the macro level scale of human history itself. So. Great. Um, as we are talking about <clears throat> teaching at
0: the moment, um, I guess it would be Nice way to wrap up our conversation with this last question of um, what do you think the the department, the anthropology um, department can offer to um, prospective students?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll try. I, I think this is also a challenging question because I don't know how to say this in a way that isn't too promotional. <laughs> Because of course, I think everybody should take at least one anthropology class in their lifetime, right? Because it um, just, I don't know, it it teaches you how to um, think in a way that simply isn't um, really available um, in other places. Um, So hmm, let me think just for one second. And I also want to avoid repeating cliches because there are certain cliches I could repeat like, well, you know, by uh, teaching you how to uh, deconstruct constructed worlds, you will learn how to deconstruct your own world and develop a more critical perspective to it. Like so that is certainly true. Um, by studying other places and other worlds, you learn to see your own world and your own life in a totally different light. That is absolutely true too. Um, yeah, I guess I guess I'll say something um, that I see a lot when I read the course evaluations from first year students, uh, first year undergraduate students, because I think they put it most simply and elegantly. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> They say um, so. I teach the anthropology 1020 class. So the students in that class, they are not anthro majors, and most of them are straight out of high school. And when I receive the positive comments, the positive comments, um, they they often say the same thing from semester to semester to semester, which is that this anthropology class. Really opened their eyes, and it really broadened their perspective. Yeah, I think that's probably the best thing I can come up with, and it's also very, very true.
0: Yeah, it's true to you too, right? When you had your first anthropology class,
1: so yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> right.
0: Yeah. Teresa, it's been it's been terrific talking to you. You've opened up so many questions. I think we'll have to come back to do this again.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Tungit. And thank you, all of you, for giving me interesting and challenging questions.
0: We hope you enjoy our interview with Teresa. In the next episode, we will be exploring how anthropology can be relevant and useful in other fields. Until next time.